In our discipleship groups for session two, uh, the homework was to do something you love and to do it as a spiritual practice. So first I want to say thank you to everyone who has been participating in these groups. Um, we've had some meet on Sunday nights, some on Sunday mornings. We've had regular meetings on Zoom, and it's been really good. We had this really um, good group on Zoom this past Wednesday, and I was leading that session, and I asked them to tell me what are some things that they love to do. Because the idea is anything can be a spiritual practice if it attunes us to God. So it doesn't like, it's not like these, this is the list of spiritual practice and you can only connect to God through these ways, praying, reading your Bible, going to church. Anything can be a spiritual practice if we allow it to open us up to God. And if God is always present and at work, then anything can be a spiritual practice because God is all around us, right? So the homework for session two was to find something you love and to do that thing as a spiritual practice. So I asked my group, what are some things you love to do? Um, and they gave me some great answers, fishing and cooking, going to the beach. I said, I don't know if you can do that one for your homework, <laughs> knowing where we live, but it's still a great answer. Watching Cardinals games. And I told them that one of the things that I love to do is read. I, I love reading. I don't often think of reading as a spiritual practice because I said, I need to confess to you, um, my favorite thing to read is young adult fiction novels that are made for, you know, 18 to 20-year-old people with their lives ahead of them and the future being bright, um, full of possibilities and imagination. These books are definitely not geared toward women who are pushing 40, whose idea of a good time is to get their kids to bed early so they can read some more. <laughs> this is not exactly who these books are geared toward. But some of my favorite novels are the ones that tell the same story from multiple characters' perspectives, where you read chapter one and it's from one perspective, and then you flip to the next chapter and you get the same storyline, the same thing that's happening, but it's a different character who's telling the story. You get various viewpoints and various interpretations of what's happening, and it's fascinating and exhilarating and it's maddening. At the same time, I just finished a young adult fiction novel that did this. It told the same story from two different characters' perspectives. And we as the reader knows what was, we know what was happening. But the two characters only had limited viewpoints. And so they were making mistakes and they were like thinking bad things about each other. And I just wanted to be like, why are you not communicating effectively? And then I realized they're 18. <laughs> and this is why 40-year-old women should not be reading young adult fiction novels. Uh, because it's just not quite the same. I'm also not 40 yet. I just need to put that in. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Okay, I'm getting sidetracked. We're going to focus. Okay. So when I come across a Bible story like the one that Robert just read for us, my young adult fiction mindset kicks in and I want to read this story from various perspectives from all the different characters. And so as I pondered this story this week, the first question I found myself asking was, what is this paralyzed man thinking? If this were a young adult fiction novel and chapter one was from his perspective, what would we discover? Is he wanting to get to Jesus? Is he hoping for healing? Is he the one who's like, like initiating this, who's calling his friends together and going, hey, y'all, I need your help to get to Jesus. Come on, let's go now. Is this on his instigation? And I'm 
I'm not so sure it is. And I think the reason I, I assume that is because I know a little something about religious shame. When I first felt called to the ministry, I was a sophomore in college at a conservative Baptist university in Texas. Y'all, this is not the place for a young woman to be called to the ministry at a conservative Baptist university in Texas. It was not the most phenomenal experience for me in that moment. I had friends who, when they heard my story, were like, but women can't do that. And my first response to them was, I know, I have no idea what's happening in my life. (laughs) Uh, When the guys in my Christian studies department would listen to my story, I remember their faces would start like this. And the longer I talked about my calling, the more their faces kind of went like this. And they went from smiling to scowling. And of course, as I became more sure of my calling and, and, and more certain that this is what God called me to do, when those men would respond with, we don't believe God calls women to do that. I thought, I don't know what to tell you. I'm just telling you what I experienced. Um, I had Layers upon layers of implicit and explicit messages that say, I know a woman's place in the church and it is not behind the pulpit. So there was a part of me that kind of understood where these guys were coming from. Because for a long time, I didn't know God called women to do this either. The first church I ever worked at, the pastor left about a year and a half in and they needed a supply preacher. And I was on staff and I had a seminary degree and I had a calling to ministry and they would not let me be their supply preacher, because I was a woman. They did say, if you really like writing sermons, you could write them and let your husband preach them. That's the same thing. (laughs) I appreciate that audible. Oh, no. Oh, no. My husband, for the, for, for, I was going to say for the most part, but actually just, he was like, um, I'm not doing that. That's not right. So thank you. I appreciate that, honey. He's sitting right here, so we're good. Um, Um, also the first time I did get to preach, and I'm not sure I've told you all this story, but the first time I did get to preach, it was at that church a while later, there was a mass walkout. Um, judging by Lindsay's face, I don't think you knew this. In between the Sunday school hour and the church service hour, there was a mass walkout because a woman was about to stand behind the pulpit and this was not something that was sanctioned by God. Uh, my experiences are have by and largely been, I am not a fully accepted member of the congregation. There are limitations. There are things that I can do and things that I can't do. And there has been a lot of religious shame for feeling, as a woman, for feeling called to preaching. And I think that is just the tiniest, most minuscule glimpse of what the paralytic man may have felt like in the course of his life. We don't know a lot about him. We don't know if he'd been paralyzed since birth. We don't know if this was a recent accident. But we've talked multiple times about how back then any sort of ailment or disease, any sort of physical difference was considered a blemish. And it kind of made you a second-class citizen, too. We read this in the Old Testament. You can find it in the book of Leviticus if you're ever looking for some light reading on, say, a Saturday afternoon. Leviticus talks about how anyone with a blemish is not able to give their offering like the priest. They're not allowed to. But also in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it says that anyone with a blemish is not allowed to be a part of the congregation. They can only speak to people in private. They cannot come out in public. They're not even allowed to be a part of the community. 
So when I think about these messages, the implicit and explicit ones that this guy has heard, your paralysis means that you did something bad, that you are bad, that God is mad at you, that God is punishing you. You can't interact with people in public anymore. You are not welcome in our congregation. You do not belong here anymore. You're unholy. You're unworthy. What must that messaging do to a person's psyche? What must that do to their, their inner dignity, to their understanding of who they are? Much less to their relationship with God. If this were a young adult fiction novel, this is where we'd turn the page and go to chapter 2. And now we're going to hear a new perspective. So hold that with you. Um, this sermon is not actually about that paralytic man. It's also not actually about the healing, even though that is obviously a vital, vital part of this story. One commentator that I read was uh, kind of questioning when the healing actually occurred. She said, you know, we think that the healing occurred when Jesus looks at the man and says, rise, take up your mat and go. But the first thing Jesus says is your sins are forgiven. What if the healing actually occurred in that moment? And he just didn't know it yet because he hadn't tried to take up his mat and go. I thought that was an interesting question. I, I began to ponder that too, but I don't actually think that is when the healing began. I actually think the healing began the moment his friend said, hey, dude, we're taking you to Jesus. This is what we're going to talk about today. This is the focus of our sermon about community and about friends and about who we get to be for each other. Luke does not tell us how many friends there were, but Mark says there were four of them. Four men who stayed to connect with this paralytic man even when he became a religious pariah. Four men who would sit with him and be present with him even when everybody else probably abandoned him. Four men who would speak truth to him in his pain and in his suffering, who would remind him of his dignity and of who he was when he started to believe all of the lies that people were saying about him. These were the friends who, even though they weren't blemished themselves, they were able to see the unfairness and the injustice of a system who kept this guy on the margins for things that he couldn't control, for things that he had no power over. And these were the friends whose faith in Jesus helped them carry this man to new life. But let's imagine for a moment what that might have cost them. What that must have took on their behalf. This moment itself of them taking their friend to Jesus, it took time to get him loaded up on that mat to figure out how the four of them were going to maneuver this thing. It took effort, like actual physical effort, to carry this thing through the heat, through the roads, down alleyways, around people, with all four of them carrying this guy. It took perseverance. Once they finally got to where Jesus was and the crowd were blocking their way and they didn't just go, well, sorry, dude, we tried and went home. It took energy and creativity for them to stop and look around and go, okay, what other options do we have? This one is obviously blocked to us. What are our other choices here? Ooh, I think I see a ladder. Time and effort, perseverance, creativity, but it also took risk. 
because they were associating themselves in public with this blemished man, a man who their religion at least said was a second-class citizen and at most said, you are not allowed to be associating with him in public. As they were carrying this man through town, they're risking their own reputations. They're risking their own standing in society to help him. And I imagine it was also uncomfortable and maybe even a little embarrassing to the people heaving and hauling, sweating their way through the villages, running into people, trying not to get in there. They stand on top of a roof and they go, okay, are we really about to do this? Yeah? All right. And they start ripping this thing off to get their friend to Jesus. This was strange. This was not normal behavior. These men loved their friend, and they had faith in Jesus. But it took effort to bring those two things together. They loved their friend, and they had faith in Jesus, but it took time and energy and risk and perseverance and discomfort for them to bring those two things together. It wasn't easy. It wasn't quick but it was absolutely worth it. Because the scripture says that when Jesus saw their faith, the word is their, not his, not the faith of the man on the mat, not just his faith, but the faith of the friends as well. Jesus sees their faith and he looks down and he says, your sins are forgiven. And shortly thereafter, he says, get up and take your mat and go home. This is, I think, who we get to be for each other as the church. For each other who are here and for those outside of our circle. For those who are on the margins. For those who are looking for a gap, for a way in. I love that we are a community who seeks to love others well. It's one of the reasons why I asked Sarah to share her story of what Dayspring has meant to her. From the stories I've heard, including today, but also stories that I've heard from others of you, Dayspring has been a place of healing and hope for so many people for so long. And that includes me, even though I haven't been here long. All those explicit and implicit messages, I didn't think anybody would ever hire me to be their pastor. And you guys did. That's a little strange, everybody. But I'm so glad that I'm here. I'm so glad for the healing that I've already experienced since being here. But this, being a place of healing and hope, of love and community, this is not a task that is ever done. This is an ongoing thing, an ongoing part of our character and our culture, not something we will ever officially accomplish. It's something we have to continue working towards, continue to foster within us. And I imagine, like other churches I know, it's something we might need to work a little bit harder on right now coming out of COVID where all of those things just got put on pause for a really long time. Within these walls, I think there are going to be more and more opportunities for us to love others, to express our deep faith in Christ, and to work to join those two things together. But it might take some effort on our part. It might cost us, too, the way it cost those friends. Here's some questions that I ask myself, and I invite you to ask yourself these questions too. When was the last time I allowed myself to be uncomfortable for the sake of reaching out to someone new? When was the last time I gave extra time or effort or energy in order to love another well? How good am I at persevering with people in matters of faith 
or trauma or social injustice? Do I give it just a half-hearted effort and then give up if it takes too long? Is it something that I only do as long as it's convenient but then tend to fall away when it gets riskier? I'm not sure I'm going to like my answers when I ask myself these questions. These four men from our story today were willing to give their time and effort, their energy and their perseverance for the sake of helping their friend get to Jesus. They were willing to risk their reputations, to risk looking weird or strange. In fact, at the end of it, I don't know if you heard Robert say it. I think the translation that Robert used said we have seen remarkable things today. But in other translations, it says people walked away from this praising God and saying, we have seen strange things today. This is a little weird. These people who are walking away like, I don't really know what I think about all that, but they walked away praising God. They know they had seen something incredible. They know they had experienced God, even though it was a little strange. I hope we're willing to be a little strange too, in order to help others experience our loving God and our loving community. I hope we're willing to try new things and be a little uncomfortable and put ourselves out there in new ways with new people, even if it seems a little bit awkward. This is one of the reasons why I called y'all strange a while ago when you hired me to be your pastor. I realized that I hadn't made that point yet. And so you're like, why did she just call us strange? I was trying to give you a compliment. It just didn't work in the process. We already have many opportunities for going across boundaries, even here in, with, within our own walls. We already have the opportunity to look around on Sunday morning and see someone who we don't know or don't know well and go say hello to them and introduce ourselves, even though that might be a little bit awkward. We already have the opportunities when we have fellowships downstairs to sit at tables with people we don't know or don't know well and get to know them a little bit better and draw that circle a little bit wider. We also have opportunities to volunteer at places like the International Food Pantry, which, by the way, our church is going back to in March. And if you're interested in volunteering, we talk to that guy right there, David Privet. It's so good that we give our time and our resources to these things, but there's something special about being present in the places that we serve so that we see faces and we learn names and we can treat people with dignity the way that Jesus treated this paralytic man with dignity. I think our poverty task force is going to be looking for additional places for us to volunteer too. Lindsay's nodding her head, so I know that was true. So these are going to be opportunities not just inside our walls, but also outside of them. And of course, we all have opportunities outside of our walls every single day with the people we live in our home with, with our neighbors, with the people we meet at grocery stores, with the people in our jobs. Sometimes in my life, I have found myself to be in the position of the paralytic man. And I need my friends and I need my community to encourage me and to speak truth to me and to help me find my path when I can't seem to find it myself. And knowing how life goes, I'm sure there will be another season where that happens again. If that's the place where you find yourself today, I hope you'll reach out to someone around you this morning before you leave. That's why we're here. That's one of the things we can do for each other. But when I find myself in a different spot, when we find ourselves in a different spot where we're not feeling marginalized or ostracized, where we're feeling like we're on the inside of the crowd and feel relatively healthy and stable there, I hope we'll lift up our heads and look around and see who isn't in that same spot. 
and draw our circle wider and wider still, inviting others in. Would you pray with me, please? God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for what they have meant to each other for many, many years. And I thank you for the way that they have opened up their circle and let me and my family in and that they continue to draw this circle wider and wider. I pray, God, that we will continue to do this as a part of our character and as a part of our culture, that this is who Dayspring is. Bring us, Lord, deeper and deeper and deeper into this reality. where people walk in this door, or like Gail said, where when we leave and we're out in other places, people experience your love and your hope through us. We treat others with dignity and kindness, not just for the sake of doing it, but so that they would know that there is a God who loves them and that there is a community where they are welcome. Thank you for the privilege of getting to walk through this life as participants with you and for getting to share your love and your truth with those around us. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.